This is the voice of the Report of the Week, signing on. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone listening. This is VORW International, the voice of the Report of the Week. It is Thursday, the 26th of September, 2019, the year being. Thank you for tuning in to this week's broadcast of VORW International, a weekly free-form talk program where many miscellaneous topics are discussed. As I said, as I just said, free-form talk show. Today is especially a free-form program, because like I said last week, this is an open lines program, so we're just going to go and bounce from one topic to the next, to the next, to the next, and so on and so forth until my little heart gives out in the metaphorical sense and I just can't take anymore. So uh, there's going to be lots of miscellaneous varied discussion. Specifically, it will be coming from you, the listening audience, and we'll just be opening up the inbox, V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. And if you're listening in right now, hey, send me an email and uh, say hello. Let me know someone's tuned in. Be great to hear from, from our listeners. Getting those emails is such a wonderful thing each and every week. But we'll be opening up the inbox and seeing what you guys have to say. Uh, we'll just be covering miscellaneous topics feedback, and uh, maybe we'll even have a good old-fashioned mailbag show, and we'll just see what correspondence is coming in. Uh, First things first, I do want to start this off with a little bit of a discussion on Amtrak. We'll get to that in a minute. Of course, a very, very busy week in regards to news. I'm not going to really discuss that, though, because, you know, it's all in regards to political news, and... You know, in today's toxic environment, God forbid you have any views on politics, you'll be you'll be crucified. It is a death sentence to have an opinion on that. So we'll skip that, but research it and see what's going on with uh, and all the talk about impeachment. So research it and you know, come to your own conclusions. I, I have nothing to offer in this program in regards to that. That is something that I am not touching with a 10-foot pole. Though, all I'll say is this. If you think the divisiveness is bad now, wait until you see what's coming next. That's my, that's my prediction. Regardless of what happens, uh, get ready. It's going to get bad. I mean, really bad. And who knows what's going, what we have going forward. We may have crossed the threshold and we're past the point of no return. I really don't know. We'll see what happens, but... Ooh, people are fired up. So, other than that, one thing that I do want to mention, and I'll keep it brief, um, but it's one of those situations, I think I've said it before, where you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, where I don't like discussing the finances of this show. I've been keeping it short over the last few programs because I got a few complaints. People were saying you spend too much time on it, and I get that. I I understand it. Um, but it, it seems as though it's one of those circumstances, like I said, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If I talk about it, I, I understand it upsets a bunch of people. But if I don't talk about it, then nothing comes in and I can't do the show. So I'll keep it quick, but I just need to stress its importance. In the last week, we only received four donations, and the total amount doesn't pay for even one hour of airtime. 
because in September I used whatever little bit of a surplus that existed earlier in the month in order to purchase three hours of additional airtime to the Bahamas with news and information going out to them, there's pretty much nothing left for the month of October in regards to airtime, costs, and keeping this program going. If you're capable of doing so, if not me, then who will help out? Because again, out of about 40-50,000 people, we only had four who went ahead and made a move to, to do anything. It doesn't need to be a lot. Even just 10, 20 people, just enough to get the ball rolling into the month of October and then go from there. So consider supporting if you can. Consider a donation of 25 50 even $10. $10, it adds up. Enough people do it and everything is solved. Everything is good. So please consider it and do what you can. Donations are welcome via PayPal to V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. Again, via PayPal to V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. And via Patreon at patreon.com slash the report of the week. I'm doing my best to keep it short, but at the same time, in trying to rush it, sometimes I think it undermines the importance, so I apologize for taking a little longer. Continuity is always important. All right, with that, I would like to give a big shout-out to our one advertiser, Studio Sheppin. Listen in and just know it's his support that is one of the sole reasons what you're hearing right now is going out to you. So, big thank you to him. Take a look, and if, if his services interest you, make sure you check it out. Studio Sheppin is a becoming comic book creator and storybook illustrator, and he's looking to work with any VORW listeners out there. Sheppin offers a variety of freelance artwork, from digital or traditional paintings, to handmade, customized stickers, to storybook and comic book illustrations. Whether you want to take your idea to a publisher or have something fun to share among friends and family, he'll be happy to work with you to make your idea take form. For creative types out there seeking casual and friendly experience in putting together a short story or short comic book, Sheppin is the artist for you. If you're interested, you can contact Sheppin and browse his artwork on his home website, studioshepin.com. Com. There you will find links to his other platforms, such as Instagram and Patreon, his commission menu for a quick price guide, and you'll also be able to browse his short and sweet collection of comic books that he's written and illustrated himself. Once again, that's studioshepin.com, spelled S-T-U-D-I-O-S-C-H-E. P-P-E-N dot com. StudioShepin.com. So anyway, like I said, take a listen now. I have a few thoughts on some recent news in regards to Amtrak, which I've always been a big advocate of. So I have a bit of bad news that I, <laughs> I just feel a need to break. If you haven't heard it already, and I'm sure you know, maybe some of you have, probably many of us haven't. And uh, I just want to give a, a, a big thank you to wh whoever it was who sent me the email about this. Because this is very disappointing news. To me personally, and maybe to you as well. You know, who's to say? 
Either way, it's very disappointing, very disheartening, no matter what. And it's just, in my opinion, quite frankly, it's a turn in the wrong direction. Where, I mean, you know I do some traveling. I'm not constantly traveling. I'm not constantly going from one place to another. But I do some traveling here and there, usually a couple times a year, up and down the eastern seaboard. Uh, sometimes to the mid-Atlantic, sometimes to the northeast. And my means of travel have have differed over the years. But when I'm not flying, and usually I swear by JetBlue, that's usually my go-to airline, I enjoy taking the train. And I enjoy going a little old school and riding Amtrak. Oftentimes, I'll take it from Florida to New York. It's a long train ride, but for a very long time, I've been quite satisfied with it. And I think when it comes down to Amtrak, I know train travel, especially in the U.S., isn't what it once was. But one thing, even if you've never rode Amtrak before, that a lot of us kind of think about when when you envision Amtrak are those sleeper cars being able to sleep in a little bed in the train for the night or two nights and then going to the dining car and being able to have a freshly prepared sit-down meal. And in 2017, I think it was October of 2017, I did a review of Amtrak's overnight service. And I took an Amtrak train from Orlando to New York. I bought one of the sleeper cars. I stayed overnight. I did a review of it. And I did a review of the Amtrak food as well. I went to their dining car. And it was pricey. Don't get me wrong. You know, Amtrak is... If you're going to sit in the coach seats, it's cheap. And it's much better than the bus. I'll tell you that right now. But if you go and you do the, the sleeper car. And you spend the night. It will it will cost a bit. And it'll definitely be at least several hundred dollars. And if it was just the... The sleeper car, if you were just paying for the bed, I would have said, I think it's unjustly expensive. But there was one redeeming quality to that experience that, in my opinion, made it special and made everything worth it, and that was their dining car. Because back then, if you bought an overnight trip on Amtrak, and you bought the sleeper car, you can get free meals, free breakfast, free lunch, and free dinner from the dining car. And I utilized it, and when I went to the dining car, I was blown away at the quality of the food I received there. Like, I wasn't really sure. I thought to myself, well, you know, it's a train. I don't know how good it's going to be. I had a steak, and it was delicious. 
it was really good, I remember. It was tender, it was juicy, the, the cut of meat was a lot higher quality than I thought it was going to be. Sides were fresh, it was just really pleasant overall. And having mentioned that, I'm extremely disappointed to announce that Amtrak is getting rid of the dining car. Completely, it's gone. Starting October 1st, those days are over. And never again will you be able to get a freshly cooked, freshly prepared, high-quality meal on Amtrak. Something that was a fixture, a staple of train travel, long-distance train travel in the U.S. Something that was a staple of it for decades. Starting October 1st will cease to exist. It'll be gone. And if you couldn't tell already, I vehemently object that decision. I think it is incredibly foolish, incredibly idiotic, incredibly short-sighted. And if they want to try and save money, this is not the way to go about doing it. All they're doing is stripping away the few things that make Amtrak special, and they're making the hard-earned money of the people who ride Amtrak go to absolute waste. That the money you're going to be paying now to go ahead and get a room there isn't even going to cover any any good quality food anymore. You can go enjoy your pre-packaged meals now. Which, trust me when I say, and I've had those too, are not worth any additional sum you would pay for them. It's very disappointing. For more information, I would like to read a short article from the Washington Post. The end of an Amtrak tradition, the Amtrak dining car. This was written by Luz Lazo on September 21st. And it goes like this. Harrison Keeley's most fond memories of riding Amtrak all include snapshots of the dining car. The shiny silverware and white linens, enjoying thick slices of French toast covered with powdered sugar, drenched in syrup while taking in the scenery the friends made over a slice of cheesecake. There's something fantastic about dinner in the dining car, said Keeley, 32, a writer from Brasstown, North Carolina, who swears by the Amtrak crab cake and steak dinner. You get to meet other people and hear so many great stories. It is, to me, one of the best parts about traveling. But that experience is about to change. Amtrak says it is reinventing its dining service on long-distance trains, killing the traditional dining cart to create more flexible and contemporary dining options. The carrier says the change, starting this fall, that being October 1st, on the one-night routes east of the Mississippi River, is driven by the desire to save money and lure a younger generation of new riders, chiefly the millennials, known to always be on the run, glued to their phones and not particularly keen on breaking bread with strangers at a communal table. With the transition, Amtrak is doing away with the traditional onboard kitchen, switching to serving prepackaged meals and easing restrictions on the traditional serving times. The change allows the railroad to cut costs associated with cooking aboard and keeping up with the white tablecloth service 
that was once known to rival high-end restaurants and clubs. Amtrak isn't labeling the change to end the end of the dining car, but rather an evolution more in line with the demands of this era. It's part of an evolution, said Peter Willander, who oversees Amtrak's customer experience. The concept is to provide service the way our customers want, rather than have everyone conform to one service delivery. Now, if I may interject there, that seems very contradictory as to what exactly they're doing. Because, and again, having been a very frequent Amtrak rider for quite a bit, when you would ride these long-distance Amtrak trains, you generally had two options for food. Number one, you had the traditional dining car, which was sit-down, and mind you, for the sake of, I suppose, flair in writing the article, they say communal table. Let me just say, you have your own table when you would go and, and eat at the dining car on the train. But you had two options. You could go and eat in the dining car, which, again, is like a sit-down restaurant. You make a reservation, you would be seated at the table, there would be table service. You can get drinks, you can get soft drinks, you can get wine, alcoholic beverages. You can get all sorts of, I mean, just good quality sit-down food that is literally prepared fresh for you. You want a steak, they're going to cook it fresh for you. You want a burger, they're going to cook it fresh for you. You name it. All of this stuff, they had a full-blown kitchen, everything. I'm talking a kitchen kitchen, not a microwave, you know. But you had that. But then there was also uh, the cafe car, or the snack car, which I guess that's what they're going to conform everything to now. That was like, you know, very, very quick, quick service stuff. Where there, it's just a counter, you go up, you pay the money, you can get a bottle of water, a bag of chips, or you can get, like, a prepackaged um, frozen sub, or a microwaved burger, or a microwaved frozen pizza. So, it's a false narrative to go ahead and say that everyone was forced to conform to this one method of dining that is simply false. Again, on all the trains where there was the sit-down dining car, there was still that snack car where, I guess, as they claim, those quirky millennials could go and get the prepackaged microwave burgers that we so love. So to say that Forcing people now to just go with this one single method of dining and claiming that they're having something for everyone by making this change is complete, complete garbage. Before this, there was far more diversity than there will be after this change. But I digress. Continuing, Mr. Willander says, Some people really like the dining car, and view it as a sort of nostalgic train experience. But some people, especially our new millennial customers, don't like it so much. They want more privacy. They don't want to feel uncomfortable sitting next to people. For now, the changes are only on Amtrak's one-night routes on the East Coast. 
The flexible dining service for sleeping car customers starts October 1st. For passengers, it will be the end of the freshly prepared meals on board. No more eggs over easy or railroad French toast. No more steak cooked to their liking. Travelers will no longer need to make reservations for the breakfast, lunch, and dinner service hours. The new menu offers a variety of prepackaged meals. Willander said the food standards aren't taking a hit, but rather he said the meals will be more consistent while the ingredients remain of, quote, high quality, unquote. He said the process of pre-ordering and pre-selecting meals will allow Amtrak to maintain tighter controls of itinerary, resulting in savings. And, and then get this. Amtrak began testing boxed meals on its Crescent trains. Last year, it eliminated full meals and introduced more contemporary dining on the Capital Limited, a DC to Chicago line, and Lakeshore Limited, a Chicago to New York line. Since then, it has tweaked the menu based on customer feedback, but officials learned that the public perception of food boxes wasn't as favorable as it hoped, and that passengers wanted more hot food options. So, even in the trial that they did, the prepackaged stuff, which I guess is supposed to be the way of the future, wasn't even well received, which is insane. Either way, it's very disappointing. To me personally, it's the end of an era, and it's a loss that I lament. I'm very thankful that I was able to really have the pleasure of being able to try their dining car and be able to get food that was quite good. And it's just quite disappointing that I had hoped in future trips to once again be able to utilize their dining car and be able to try more of their menu, explore the variety that they offer. But it's sad to say that that's never going to happen. And I don't, I, I really don't like speaking out against Amtrak, because I, I always, I used to like them as a company. And I'll still probably ride the trains at some point. But it, it takes away the thing I used to enjoy most about riding the train, and the thing that made the let's be honest, overpriced room at, worth it. And with that, I'm sorry, but I just don't see your money going to anything worthwhile. The price you would be paying, I should emphasize. I just don't see it, I don't see that money being worth it at all anymore, so I, I revise my assessment of it. I'm sorry, it's, I quite simply object strongly to this move. And I know sitting here talking about it isn't going to change a thing. It never does. But if their CEO is free to go ahead and deprive people of such a wonderful service, I'm free to go ahead and speak my mind and openly criticize what I feel is such a poor decision and a terrible lapse of judgment. Now, there is a petition going around and when there's something that I really feel strongly about, uh, I will openly promote it. Again, and I hate to be so pessimistic, but it'll probably be as ineffectual as the petition to, to, to save Radio Australia from the air was. But I think no matter what, it is important, if you disagree with their decision, 
to let your disagreement be known. And likewise, if it's something that you wish, I know signing a petition is easy, I recommend it. Also, if you want, contact Amtrak. Let them know you're displeased with the decision. And since Amtrak is a federally funded entity, consider writing your congressman as well. So the link to find it is in the description. And if you aren't listening on YouTube, which I know there are many who aren't, you can find the petition by going to change.org. And then in the upper right-hand corner of the website, you'll see the little magnifying glass, you know, for the search bar. Click on that and then type in Amtrak Dining Car. And the petition is titled, Tell Amtrak We Want Dining Car Service to Remain on All Long Distance Trains. So, again, if it's something that you feel strongly about, make sure you sign it. And uh, it's all up to you, though. You know, it's entirely your decision, your choice. And uh, I'm not going to pester anyone to sign it. If you want to, go for it. If you don't, then don't. And that's completely fine. Sometimes I think when it comes down to petitions, sometimes, like, if you get... If it's like you're pestered to the point of someone spamming you about it, it almost has a counterintuitive reaction. You know, I remember this one guy was uh, sending me constant emails. At first, it was like for some petition for some Spongebob thing. Um, But, you know, I may as well check it out, see what it's all about, you know? But it just wasn't really serious. It was more like something that was a meme, so I didn't sign it. But then he emailed me like 20 times a day to the point where it was spamming me and it made me get more fed up than anything else with it. So, I'm not going to do that. It's just, you know, it's there if you want to sign it. If not, that's completely fine. You're listening in to VORW Radio International, the voice of the Report of the Week. Well, again, any thoughts on the program? I'm not going to have a question today, but it would be great to hear from you. Uh, it, It would be great. Your feedback on the show is welcome. Your thoughts, any questions and topic suggestions are welcome. Send me an email if you're listening in to VORW. I-N-F-O at gmail.com. My favorite part of the show is knowing what people think of it. So send me an email if you can. Again, it would be great to hear from you. V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. So I just want to do a good old mailbag program tonight. So let's us go through and see what we've got coming in. So we'll just open up the inbox, V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com, and let's us see what's coming in. Let's go for it. Why not? I haven't done this in a long time. So let's see what we have. Nathan is checking in. He says, long time listener, but this is the first time I've written anything in. My topic is that of the Dyatlov Pass incident. I've recently been doing some research into the subject, and I find it rather interesting. There are many different theories about what happened to the hikers during that incident, including a Yeti attack, covert KGB operations, or even a mutiny within the camp itself. Although most recently it has come to pass that due to the shape of the Dyatlov Pass itself, it is home to some incredibly rare weather conditions, 
which can simulate hurricane-force winds unexpectedly and cause the injuries found in some of the hikers that were previously thought only to happen in car crashes or explosions. Either way, I enjoyed researching this mystery, and while there may never be an exact answer, it is always fun to speculate. I was wondering if you have any theories as to what happened during that trip. So the Dyatlov Pass incident was, uh, that was always a fascinating thing. That was always interesting to me. It happened on February 2nd, 1959, in the Dyatlov Pass, uh, Soviet Union. And it resulted in the deaths of nine hikers in the northern Ural Mountains. In, of course, very unclear circumstances. And what happened was you had this group, they were experienced hikers. Again, that this is one thing to remember. They weren't just some regular, average Joes that were just saying, hey, let's go into the woods, right? These were individuals who knew what they were doing. You know, they were professionals. That's one thing that needs to be remembered. And they were from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, and they traveled out there, only to be found later on. Of course, they were missing, and when their bodies were finally discovered, they had these gruesome injuries. It says, during the night, something caused them to tear their way out of their tents, flee the campsite, all while inadequately dressed for the heavy snowfall and sub-zero temperatures, right? So it makes it seem like these people were in their campsite, they were in their tents, sleeping. All of a sudden, something hits the fan. Something happens that causes them to get up, obviously, very, very hastily, right? Not something that they were prepared for in any way, to just go out into the freezing cold in the snow you know, just in their undergarments. And after the bodies were discovered, Soviet authorities determined that six had died from hypothermia, whereas three others from physical trauma. One of them had a fractured skull, two others had major chest injuries, and another was missing her tongue and eyes. And the investigation concluded that an unknown compelling force had caused the deaths. Of course, like it was mentioned, many, many theories were, you know, put forth as to what killed them, what, what happened exactly, right? So, what caused it exactly? Because it's very mysterious, you know, there were no survivors. There is no witness to what happened. All we know is that they went out of their tents, they died, some of them very violently so. If I were personally to give any sort of hypotheses, I think it was either some sort of obviously unpredicted extreme weather event. Again, one theory, of course, would be the hurricane force wind. Still wouldn't necessarily explain why the one person was missing their eyeballs and their tongue. I've never really heard of, unless it was debris, but even then, that's kind of weird. I've never really heard of anyone having their tongue ripped out in a any sort of 
hurricane force wind, though. Could have frozen and then got ripped off, I suppose. That's that's always an option right there. But I, ver I very likely believe it was either an extreme weather event, or it was possibly they were the inadvertent recipients of some sort of weapons testing. Uh, I, I do believe it said high levels of radiation were found on only one victim's clothing. And even though it was only on one person, that's, isn't that weird, though? Like, there's radiation on this person's clothing? So, I mean, knowing how the Cold War was, and, I mean, especially 1959, right, things were getting pretty crazy, that's definitely an option. I mean, it's a pretty remote area, pretty rural. Could it be that they were... Again, inadvertently caught up in some sort of weapons test. I, I can't really see, especially given how things were at the time, the government to go ahead and openly say, yeah, you know, we launched this, probably a secret weapon, mind you, and yeah, we killed a bunch of people by accident, right? It's one of those things, probably be kept under lock and key. So, I think it was probably one of those two things. Now, it did say in February 2019, CNN announced that the Russian authorities were reopening the investigation, although only three possible explanations are being considered. An avalanche, a snow slab avalanche, or a hurricane. Possibility of a crime has been completely discounted. Yeah, and I, I don't think they were killed. Again, there was a theory about the Dyatlov Pass incident. There was a group of indigenous peoples that went and killed them, but there's very, very, you know, little, if any, proof that, uh, you know, that could have happened. And then, of course, you know, a Bigfoot attack, right? That's the Yeti attack, you know. There were two interesting other pieces of, of feedback in regards to that uh, from people who were present, you know, seeing the bodies or whatnot. There's one person who was 12 years old who attended the at least five of the hikers' funerals, and he recalled that their skin had a deep brown tan, which may go and, and actually give further credibility to maybe being the victim of a weapons test. Uh, another group of hikers, 30 miles south of the incident, reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north on the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in adjacent areas continually, during that period from February to March 1959, uh, by various independent witnesses, including the Meteorology Service and the military. So, could it be that, again, these were maybe weapons tests, uh, spy planes, you know, doing some sort of test bombing run, you know, chemical weapons, who's to say? I mean, that wouldn't really surprise me. And then I could understand the lack of just going ahead and saying, yeah, we were testing out our secret weapons and it killed these people, right? So I could understand that. So either way, uh, definitely very fascinating. Thank you very much. And that was from Nathan. Trevor in Wisconsin is checking in. Says, I've been listening to your podcast via YouTube since May of 2019. Since it's open mics this week, I have a question that, that not many people have the privilege of being to, able to answer. You can feature it in the show if you'd like. Being a well-known figure of the internet, you've almost certainly had complete strangers recognize and try to greet you in public. 
How many times are you recognized and greeted in public? And what are your general thoughts on fans or haters approaching you in public? Do you have any stories you would like to share? So thank you, Trevor. Every single time I go outside, I get recognized. Every single time, without fail, believe it or not. Uh, if I go to the store, I get recognized. If I... Unless, like... If I go, let's say, to a public place where a good amount of people are, uh, I will get recognized. And I remember one time I went out, and I believe it was at a Chick-fil-A. And I remember I went in, I ordered the food, or I was actually, I was online to order the food, and sometimes the, in, the interior of these places can get quite crowded. And I was online... And someone came up, recognized me from the YouTube channel. And then someone else came up. And then another person. And then another person. And then another person. And then I ordered my food, and the person behind the counter recognized me. And then I sat down and was eating. And then five more people came up. And in total, I was at this Chick-fil-A, and I was recognized well over a dozen times. Uh, by all different people. It wasn't just one group of people that recognized me. And it was one of those times where it was, you know, one right after the next, after the next, uh, where it got, it got a bit crazy, and it got a bit overwhelming. And it was like it was a little too much. <laughs> I don't mind people going out and, and recognize me, and I understand it's just a coincidence, but it was crazy, and it, it was just... I remember, I remember it got to the point where I was sitting there and I was just thinking to myself, how many more people are going to, to come up to me? So it was crazy. But I remember that. In the end, though, I think the most important thing to remember is that it's completely understandable and completely fine, and there's nothing wrong with someone recognizing you. You know, nothing wrong at all. So, despite any of that, and despite any anxieties that I may have or harbor, it doesn't bother me if, if I'm out and about, and you see me, and you happen to recognize me from the YouTube, there's nothing wrong with coming up and saying, hey, are you uh, the report of the week? You know, and, and so on and wanting a picture. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. So uh, that's completely fine, and I, I completely understand. So I'm more than welcoming when it comes down to that. The only thing, and this has always bothered me, and again, I understand why some people do this, but this is the one thing that, again, I, it's just uncomfortable. This is the one thing I don't like, is when someone tries, like, let's say someone recognizes me, but someone doesn't want to come up and say anything, and decides to just try and take pictures of me secretly, and try and film me secretly, I think that that's just creepy and extremely rude to do. And I, I will tell you this, you may think that you're trying to be inconspicuous, but I, I can see what you're doing. I remember there was one guy once who was, who was doing exactly that. 
and he thought that he was he, he thought he was being secretive. He thought he was blending in and that no one could tell he was taking pictures. I it was the most obvious thing I could see. It was like, yeah, I'm just going for a stretch and I'm just going to pull my phone out and line it up like this and hold it for a couple seconds and yeah, nothing abnormal going on here. It always makes me wonder, like, do those... You hear about this on the news every now and then. Those perverts that go around taking pictures of, of women, you know, inappropriately in public. I doubt they even realize how obvious it looks. But I can just say having people have, you know, tried to take secret pictures of me in public, it's very, very noticeable. So... Don't be one of those people. I understand that you have your anxieties. I have mine, too. And just put yourself in my shoes. Think, how would you feel if someone was there trying to take pictures of you without you noticing and following you around, uh, practically stalking you, taking pictures, filming you, etc.? Just come up to me. Say, hello, are you the report of the week? And you'll get a much better picture instead of some blurry creep shot. Uh, you get a picture right there, you know, in focus, good lighting, and do whatever you want with it. So, that's my only thing. But, who am I to tell anyone what to do? Anyway, what we got coming in right now are some audio recordings. Uh, going forward, if there is anything that you would like to submit by recording the audio, go, go right ahead. They're always a lot of fun to listen to. I know a lot of people like them. I do, too. So if there's any thoughts you have, any thoughts on the show, any miscellaneous points or topics or questions you wish to raise, go right ahead and uh, get, get your microphone, get your phone, anything, and record your thoughts, and then send me the audio at v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. Just something to do, but let's get to a bunch. I think we have about five or so, and I think we're just going to go on a little bit of an audio marathon. We'll get to all of them, if we can, anyway. So first and foremost, we have Jackson in Southwest Virginia. Welcome to the show, Jackson. What are your thoughts? Hey, John. This is Jackson again. And I had been thinking about this a lot lately. And when you said in your last show that it was open ideas this week, I figured I'd take my opportunity and say this. In modern America and a lot of the world, political tension is so high and so many people are so angry and so hateful to anyone that does not agree with them and what they think. And I think it is truly going to be to be the demise of America if we keep this up. Left, right, liberal, libertarian, and anything in between, we all need to be nicer to each other and not immediately shut people out from having a different opinion. It truly is one of the nicest things ever to have a civil discussion with someone of opposing political beliefs. When someone doesn't believe like you, just ask them why they believe that way and maybe give some input on your beliefs and try to find a middle ground and maybe learn something. In the end, I hope that everyone in our that everyone in our case in America want at their core for America to prosper and be a better place for all its citizens. And thank you, John, for being largely unbiased on your show and willing to share anyone's beliefs, even if you don't agree with them. And to anyone listening to, listening to this, please think about what I said and maybe share it with others so that we can make the world a less hateful place. And yeah, that's all I have for this week. Absolutely, Jackson. I, I certainly agree with you. There's always commonalities. And there used to be a saying, agree to disagree, where everyone has their differences, everyone has their differing viewpoints and opinions, 
but it's still possible to treat each other kindly, see past those things, and continue to live life harmoniously. But I, I just have a feeling, look, I said it earlier in the show, I harbor the exact same sentiments you do. I wish people treated each other better, treated each other nicer, and I hope things get better. But again, looking at the recent events in the news, uh, I have a feeling if, if, and I hate to be like such a downer, right? I hate to be such a pessimist, but like even in 2016 and before, I never thought things would get as bad socially. I'm saying how people treat each other and treat each other's views. I never thought it would be as bad as it is now. And trust me, it's bad. You know, you can't even... Unless you want to commit, in the metaphorical sense, suicide, and have an opinion on a current event, uh, you can't even express it anymore. It used to be with controversial views only, but things have become so terribly hateful and vitriolic nowadays where any viewpoint, including not having a viewpoint, or having a center viewpoint, or even being impartial, is considered a controversial viewpoint in the eyes of a large number of people. Right? I mean, let me just use the whole example with what's going to be dominating the headlines for the next number of months, right? The whole impeachment thing. Now, regardless of your views on it, you can have any viewpoint on it whatsoever, and a substantial, a, a substantial percentage of the population will go after you, right? Like, let's look at it this way, right? If you say, I think Trump should be impeached, all the people that disagree with you are going to hate you. If you say, I think Trump should remain in office, all the people who want him impeached are going to hate you. If you say, I don't really know, maybe it should be looked into, people are going to harp into you and they're going to say, that's too mild of a stance, what's wrong with you? Or they're going to say, no, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be looked into at all. And if you just say, I don't know, I need more information. They'll say, you're a stupid idiot. You should be more caring about what's going on in this country. Go ahead and look into it more, you idiot. And then if you say, I don't want to share my opinion, you'll have everyone that's going to say, why, what's wrong? You're not proud of your opinion? What's wrong with you? And it's only going to get worse. Thank you, Jackson. It's a shame that such sentiments are now something along the lines of a dream at this point in time. Lonnie is sending in an email, and he says, I've recorded an audio message for this week's podcast. Hello, Review Bruh. This is Lonnie from Florida, and I have to say I recently started listening to your food review videos on YouTube and then started getting interested in your podcast. I have to say I'm thoroughly entertained by them. I myself also have an appreciation for unknown mysteries, paranormal, cryptids, ancient technologies, ancient civilizations, things like that. One thing I think you might find interesting is a television show from the 70s called In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Uh, if you want to check that out, I think you would like it. One thing that relates to that is that 
Uh, I know a lot of people uh, throw shade on all that kind of stuff, but I think it is foolish to think that man knows everything at any one point. We all progress in knowledge, both in science and other discoveries, um, and at any one point to think that we have reached the pinnacle of knowledge about everything on our earth and outside of it in space and everywhere else is, to me, uh, would be foolish. The point of my call, I wanted to get your take on the Navy's comment, the U.S. Navy's comment on a couple UFO videos that were released. Actually, they were released a couple years ago, but the Navy just commented on them last week and say, stated that they are real. They are not um, fake. So I don't know if you watched the videos, but it shows uh, several um, military pilots interacting, not interacting with, but observing uh, some what appear to be craft flying at super high speeds, and you can see they're quite taken aback. Now, also these are these are highly trained U.S. servicemen trained to observe and report, very sober minded, and not prone to exaggeration. You can see they're in quite uh, astonished by these craft. It's really uh, pretty interesting to watch. If you get a chance, check out Tucker Carlson's. Um, he did a uh, like an eight-minute uh, segment on the whole UFO videos, and he called it one of the most important news events of his lifetime, which I have to say I agree because you have some unknown person or entity or something piloting these, these craft that far exceed any technology we currently have. And you would have to assume they would also have advanced weapon systems accompanying this this uh, craft, which would be cause for great concern. Um, so just want to get your take on that. And uh, thanks, and keep up the good work. Thank you. That was from Lonnie in Florida here checking in. And yes, the other week, the Navy released some videos of what it confirmed were UFO encounters with, like you said, these highly trained pilots. And the video exists. It's out there. You can watch it anytime you want. Now, maybe... I mean, what, what's always a possibility, right? Because the one thing about the term UFO, right, is that it stands for Unidentified Flying Object which is arguably what they are. They are unidentified. We don't know where they came from. And they're very obviously flying objects. Uh, but of course, by default, the name unidentified flying object, whilst having that connotation with extraterrestrial life, doesn't expressly say that it is. So... I would say that it's one of three possibilities. Number one, it is some sort of secret aircraft, be that spy plane or fighter. could be manned or unmanned. It could be created by the U.S. government, but at the same time, just because the people who saw it are part of the U.S. Navy and are fighter pilots doesn't mean that they are disclosed to everything. Uh, you know, it could be top secret and run by the U.S. government, uh, but it's just that 
you know, the higher-ups aren't going to disclose what it is, because, again, it's a project that's supposed to be under lock and key. That's a possibility. Could also be that it is a foreign secret aircraft. Could be from Russia, could be from China. That, that would be my guess. One of those two, most likely. And it could be making the rounds, and that's what it is. Now, the third possibility, certainly the most interesting, and I won't rule it out completely, I'll be honest. Like, number one, I think extraterrestrial life exists. I truly believe, I know it's unsubstantiated, but I truly believe that considering the size, scale, and scope of the galaxy and the universe, alien life exists 100% in all forms, including extremely advanced alien life that puts us to shame, and single-celled very rudimentary organisms, and everything in between. So, understanding that, while I think it is unlikely, there is a serious possibility. What if that was extraterrestrial technology? That would be incredible. Wouldn't it be? That would be just absolutely incredible. But who's to know? Uh, but definitely those videos are completely authentic, verifiable, and uh, as a result, uh, that's probably the most we're ever going to know about them. I think it's as fascinating, though, to hypothesize and wonder what possibly it may be. So thank you so much for bringing that up, Lonnie. Uh, very interesting, absolutely. Next, we'll go over to Ryan, who has a question. Review brah, it's Ryan from Iowa. I'm calling in looking for some advice. I'm traveling to Australia soon, and I'm feeling anxious. Obviously, with a flight that long, it's new for me. And there's a lot of different things that have popped into my mind that I would be anxious about. Like, all my flights lining up, being claustrophobic, and not having enough room on the plane. Losing luggage, being away from my loved ones and my pets, and just kind of a general fear of change and travel and also just like little things on the plane like snoring too loud or too often or walking around too much and annoying people it's all just kind of in the back of my mind and so what I'm looking to see if you have any advice because I've seen you've made some plane trips in the past and recorded them um, for me and other listeners is there anything important not to forget or any way that you would deal with your anxiety and stress in a situation like traveling when there's so much to do and so many things to remember? Um, I've, I've even got to the point where I've thought about canceling the trip. I've just kind of spent too much money at this point to cancel. Um, but have you ever had to cancel a big trip or big plans because of anxiety? Um, anything you can offer, I would really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to the trip, but I'm nervous at the same time. Well, thank you for your question. Uh, number one, first and foremost, I hope you have a wonderful trip. And I can guarantee you, it'll be better than you think. It'll be more enjoyable than you think. And I can assure you that. When it comes down to plane travel, especially the first time flying, you know, it can seem as though it is a very intimidating task. I completely understand. The very first flight 
I ever took was a massive, it was like a 12-hour flight from Newark Airport in New Jersey to Honolulu, Hawaii, and it was a massive, massive, huge flight. And, you know, there's always lots of variables that you're always wondering about at first. What about the, the flight itself, about turbulence, about the TSA, about the other passengers, and so on and so forth. But I can guarantee you, from all the experiences I've had flying, it's only been positive for me, really. Uh, one thing, I know a lot of people have like a fear of flying, they worry about a plane crash, but know this, traveling by plane is one of the safest ways to travel possible, if not the safest. You have a substantially higher chance of dying in an accident on your way to the airport than you do ever being on the plane itself. So rest assured with that. As I'm sitting here recording this show, I mean, I'm just looking around in the skies right now and I see like four planes just at this immediate moment. And every one of those planes is fine. It's not bursting into flames. They're all filled with passengers who are going to reach their destination safely. Another thing, of course, is always remember, I would even advise going on one of these sites like Flight Radar 24 and just take a look at this map. It's a radar map that shows how many planes there are in the sky at any given moment. And you look at the tens of thousands of planes flying around, and not one of them is, is statistically going to get into an accident. The chances of there being any sort of plane crash are so rare, so slim, uh, it's incredibly safe. And there's a reason why plane crashes get in the news so much, because it's a rare occurrence. Unlike a car crash, or any of that, right? So number one, realize it's extremely safe. Number two, it's really no different than any other means of, of travel. Once you get settled into your seat, everything's okay. And to me, it's slightly comfier than, let's say, in a bus or any of that. You know, once you're in your seat, you're in your seat, and you're just there for the ride. But it's going to be okay. It'll go quick. There are many things to do, you know, in order to pass the time. It's going to be over before it even began, so it seems. And I remember when I fly up and down the coast, it always amazes me. It's like, wow, I can't believe I traversed, you know, 1,500 miles in such a short span of time. It's like, it's incredible. It always amazes me. And I always like, if, if there's especially a little you know, screen or console on the on the seat in front of you. You can watch a movie. You can usually look at this map that shows where the plane is, listen to music, whatever. Uh, always take advantage of the Wi-Fi that's in the plane. Even if you have to pay a couple bucks for it, it's always worth it. It helps it go by quick. And, you know, when it comes down to passengers, look, you can't choose who you're sitting next to or who is in the seats nearby you. So it's... There's no cause to worry then, because it's something that is out of your control. And when it comes down to snoring or any of that, don't worry about that. Look, if you snore, you snore. It's not going to be the end of the world. 
But in the end, just know, look, we have our anxieties. I have my anxieties when it comes down to traveling. And yeah, there have been times where I've backed out of a trip and even lost substantial amounts of money that I couldn't get a refund for because I, I just couldn't do it. I admit that. So yes, there's times where I've backed out too. And sometimes if you just can't do it, you can't do it. And that's okay. But if this is something you're able to do, go ahead with it and just take my word on it. A, a, a guarantee it's going to be better than you think. So I hope you have safe travels. Also just focus on the destination and all the fun that you're going to have once you get there because it'll be good. So thank you, Ryan, for your question there, Ryan in Iowa, and uh, I hope everything works out for you. Going over to our next response, Lucy, a regular listener in England, has a few thoughts. Hi, John. In response to the open lines, I wanted to put forward a question which I've been thinking about for quite a long time, and that is, what is art? And by that I mean, what are the specific attributes or features that can take any average object or piece of media and give it that sort of higher status of being a piece of art. And this question can really be applied to any sort of creative outlet, um, you know, from painting, filmmaking, music to architecture. And it's a difficult question because it's so subjective and often it really does come down to a gut feeling where you experience the thing and just think, wow. For me, it does come down to things like aesthetics, creativity, um, effort or meaning, and a key thing is whether it elicits an emotional response in the audience. Um, you may notice that I didn't include technical skill in there, and that's because I do think that a complete beginner can create something that's you know uniquely moving, charming or beautiful without being formally trained. That's not to take away from those with formal training, as it's really hard work. And, um, you know, we wouldn't have so many masterpieces without them. Regardless, um, I do think that anyone being asked this question will have a slightly different answer from pretty much anyone else out there. So it is a really interesting one to hear opinions on. So thank you for your question. Uh, definitely I agree with what you say when it's very, very subjective. And I think everyone will have a different answer in regards to it. Which I think is wonderful. You know, that it's not one of those uniform type of things that everyone either says this or says that. Uh, it's it, it would invoke such a diverse variety of responses. And I think that is an interesting question that I think... That might be one that I'll save for a future program. It'd be interesting. Definitely, that'd be an interesting one to ask for sure. And I might actually kind of note that down. I might I might ask that going forward as a, uh, a question for correspondence, not this time around, but maybe for a future show, because it'll definitely, would be interesting to see what people think for that one. I mean, in my opinion, when it comes down to art, it spans so many platforms, and it's, it's not just taking a paintbrush to canvas and painting a landscape, you know? There, there's so much more to it. And it can be done so many ways, on so many platforms. It can be done in that traditional sense. It could be something that's sculpted. It could just be through objects. It could be something you're literally 
physically doing. Could be a video, could even be audio, or anything in between. Digital art, right? Anything. I think it's something that encompasses a broad scope of various pursuits, activities, endeavors, and resources. I think it's all about having that desire to create, establish, or represent something in an expressive manner. Because again, I think the most important thing about art is to leave the door open. Leave the door open to options, to possibilities, to interpretations. I think the last thing art should be is cut and dry, black and white, A or B, just this or that, right? It should, I think, just be completely open. So that's a really interesting one, though. Thank you for bringing it up. And certainly it might end up being a question for future programs. Again, as I mentioned earlier, any correspondence is welcome to V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. Always a pleasure to hear from anyone and everyone. Feel free to send an email to that address. All right, this next piece of feedback comes from Russell, a regular listener. What's going on, Brother Man John? Just finished your podcast, man. I enjoyed uh, enjoyed what everyone had to say. I mean, uh, man, some people had me a little thrown. <laughs> I had, I mean, I had a hard time keeping up with some of the stuff. I was like, whoa. Um, but I definitely enjoyed what everyone had to say, and uh, I enjoyed the podcast, and... Uh, I got excited when I heard this week's question. I mean, you know, the open-ended, whatever. Well, it's a suggestion. I guess. Uh, I guess I just. I just wanted to say. I mean, not even just uh, in some of the responses in your show. I mean, in, in just the world lately. I guess. Uh, not only this, but um, as as of lately, some things have uh, been arising that I find that people are. I are a little down, or uh, and a lot of weird things have been happening lately, just in my life, or just in general. Like I feel like I've been seeing a lot of weird stuff, and it's just a weird time. And I feel like a lot of people are, I don't know what about in a negative headspace, but maybe a like a bit a bit of a lost headspace, and like uh, people are pretty lonely out there. And I think uh, I think no matter what, what we can all hold true and dear to us is uh that what we're all here together we're all brothers and sisters in the in the cause of of living right and uh i mean whether you're lonely happy alone we're all lonely together right we're all happy together we're all whatever your your niche whatever you are whatever you got going on you know there's plenty of people like you and there's no reason to feel down or there's no reason to feel down about you feeling down it's okay and everything will fall into place and you just got to look look up and stand tall right and i just remember that you're not alone and of course of course that's almost meaningless when you physically literally are alone and you feel as though like you know these words are almost arbitrary but it's it's true. It's true because your 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 soulmate right now or who are, again it it doesn't not your boyfriend or your wife or your you know it doesn't matter. 
your friend, whoever you prefer to be around, there's people around in in this place that we are meant for. And you can't let this time bring you down. You have to stand tall, find yourself, and then once you find yourself, you'll find the people that you need to. Because if you try to be someone else, if you're not content with who you are, if you're trying to do something else or be someone else, then the people that like that will go ahead and be your friend. But you're not going to get the people that you need to be around, the people that like you for you. You're going to be around the people that like you for being whoever jock or whoever kind of whatever kind of subculture you try to subscribe to. Uh, again, if you if you have interests... Have interest in them, and let 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 it find you. Don't don't uh, I don't know. Don't don't rush things. Don't be don't be artificial. Is what I'm saying. Right, and I I agree. Where, you know, what what you're saying, I think it's a very important. I think it's a very important thing a lot of people should consider, if they haven't already. The importance of being authentic because in this life one thing that I always stress so much is to be you to be the person that you are not to change and mold yourself into someone that you really aren't to think something that you really don't think or believe. You need to be you. Individuality is a thing that I am a very strong advocate for. It's what separates you from everyone else. What makes you, you. What makes you special. And that's such a wonderful thing about life, about this world. The fact that we can be ourselves and it's so important not to lose that. Now, it's one thing, look, it's okay to change. It's all right to try new things out, but don't try and be something that you're not. Uh, I, I agree there. That's something that I've given many lectures on, and sometimes it takes time. You're not always going to be able to just sit there and find yourself and find who you really are. It's going to take time, and it might not just happen out of the blue, but stay true to yourself. Uh, such an important mindset, such an important thing, something I myself am a very strong advocate of. This is VORW Radio International, and now I think we have time for one more recording. We have Adrian in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, who is checking in. Welcome to the show, Adrian. Hey, Review Bra. This is Adrian from Winnipeg, Manitoba. I've been listening to your podcast pretty recently, and I'm really interested in a lot of the topics you discuss. And this is something the news should really be taking more notice of, and it really makes me kind of mad that it that nobody's really talking about it too much. But I don't know if you've heard about the Loch Ness Monster thing, where they used this new technique called eDNA, where they just put it inside the lake... And they basically deducted that because of all the DNA they found in the water, that the Loch Ness Monster might just be a giant eel. I don't know how, what you feel about this, and, like, I think it's pretty interesting. And just because it's a giant eel, it doesn't mean that it 
it wasn't like a monster this whole time. Like, it seems like it was a monster of an eel. It was just not a plesiosaur. But I think it's pretty interesting, and I'd like to know what you think of this. And thank you, Adrian, for your topic there, your question. If anyone can tell, and I'm sure you can, I am back indoors. I just decided to move back inside. Just you know, no reason, really. So, uh, continuing, though. In regards to the Loch Ness Monster, I mean, I understand some people might be disappointed because, you know, maybe if it just ended up being a giant eel, right? I think that's still, you know, like you said, in the most literal sense, a monstrous-sized eel. I think that's pretty darn cool either way. Um, But I know that it would, of course, upset some people who might have thought that uh, it perhaps was a plesiosaur. Now, either way, though, One thing about the Loch Ness Monster that I think goes to show, I think it is a 100% guarantee that there are things quite sizable, as a matter of fact, lurking in the oceans that we, we have yet to discover. I mean, again, one thing that I really like to prove with that is the giant squid. Something that was, you know, almost at that level of being mythological. The Kraken, you know? And then it's discovered that the giant squid, which is up to 50 feet in length, I mean, can you just imagine the sheer size of such a creature? Exists. Yet, despite being such a massive beast, right, it it, it only... The the number of encounters, actual photographic uh, video encounters of this, I could probably count on one hand. And then that begs the question, yeah, but but it's so big, how can it be so, so seldom filmed? It's because the oceans are a massive place. I think there are, there, there are big things out there that are still, they have yet to be discovered because there's just so much space, so much to be discovered, so little we know. And I mean, just for reference, Loch Ness, it's not just a little tiny lake Either way, regardless of what's in there or what isn't, right? The average depth of Loch Ness is 433 feet. The maximum width is 1.7 miles, with the maximum length being 22.5 miles. So, it's quite large either way. And then when you consider the size of the oceans... I think, if anything else, it just goes to show we have no idea what's out there. So thank you so much, Adrian, for your question. Great to hear from you. And with that now, let's go over to some of the written correspondence that has been coming in. You're listening to VORW Radio International Open Lines with a good old-fashioned mailbag program. All right, so let's continue our way through the inbox and see what we have. Let's make our way down. We get an email from Julia in Atlanta, Georgia. She says, first, I'm glad to hear that you weathered Dorian safely. And I did have a few conversation topic suggestions. So she gave a list, and uh, we'll we'll go with the first one. Says, could you talk about the beach? Uh, Your favorite ones, good memories related to them. So thank you, Julia, for your email there. The beach. 
You know, it's actually an interesting topic that you raise there. At first, some people might say, well, the beach, you know, I, I never really uh, struck you as any sort of beach-going individual. And at present, I am not. Uh, you know, it's just... I, I, I just... Now, let me just say this outright. I don't care what anyone else, you know, wears. It is what it is. I personally just don't feel comfortable wearing, I don't know, just wearing, you know, any sort of swimwear in a public place. I don't know. I just feel really, really weird at this point in time anyway. Uh, you know, that's just me anyway. It's one thing like in a private pool or whatever, but in a public place, I'm just, I'm weird that way. I don't know. I don't know why that is, but I mean, I haven't even worn a pair of shorts in public in like 10 years, so... I I set myself to a certain standard, but I expect no one, no one else in the entire world to ever abide by that same thing. I don't want people to. I want people to wear what they want to wear, and I'll wear what I want to wear, but that's aside the point. When I was younger, I used to go to the beach uh, from time to time, when I was on vacation. Uh, you know, granted, the New York area didn't necessarily... It's not known for its beaches. You know, yes, there's the Jersey Shore, and there's Long Beach Island, and um, over in Long Island, there's Jones Beach, and those are good, but uh, granted, when you go more toward, of course, Florida, I mean, the beaches, I hate to, you know, some people, if anyone feels strongly about one or the other, I just think the ones in Florida are nicer. Uh, same thing with Myrtle Beach and uh, the Outer Banks and so on and so forth. But when I was younger, yes, I would go to the beach from time to time. I remember I was I was at all three of those. That's why I say, you know, for reference. I remember the Outer Banks were... The water there was colder. I remember that. Even And that's one thing about the ocean. It takes a while to heat up. That's why hurricane season lasts so long, because, like now, even though the air temperature in many areas is starting to get a little cooler, right, the ocean is still going to retain its heat for a while, and, of course, that is much more prone to tropical development, which is why hurricane season, I mean, it really peaks in September and in October, whereas earlier in the year, despite being prime vacation time, the water in uh, July... It's just, it's cooler in general. Not always, but that's just my observations. Um, but, I mean, Outer Banks, though, Myrtle Beach, those were fine. The favorite beach I was ever at was St. Augustine, Florida. But, it was the last time I was ever at a beach, and actually swam there during the daytime. Uh, because even though I had a lot of fun... I had lots of fun swimming around, and, you know, in the surf, and whatever. Uh, that was the last time I was ever at a beach, because I, it was it was defective, you know. And that was on, you know, that was on me for not really making sure, but the sunscreen, like I said, was defective. It, even though it was regularly applied, it didn't do its job. And needless to say, spending, I mean, it was a full day, you know, eight hours in the Florida sun with sunscreen that didn't do its job. 
you're going to end up like a, a lobster. And I did. I burn very easily. I don't tan. I burn. And I'm fine being very pale. That doesn't bother me. Some people have said, go get a tan, but I'm fine being pale. I, I have no issue with that. If, if it looks like I live in a cave, then that's fine. If I look like a, a cave monster, I'm, I'm fine with that. But the, uh, I, I was burnt to a crisp. That's the best way to put it. I was, just, I was all burnt up, you know, had even, even in the immediate aftermath, I felt sick, you know, I felt like I had the flu. So it might've even been some maybe mild, uh, sun poisoning, who's to say, but yeah, it wasn't the fun, uh, I was on vacation when that happened and it wasn't the fun rest of, uh, rest of the vacation, you know, and it's kind of, it's crazy how a sunburn can just ruin everything, but that's what happened. But those are some stories. If you're going to the beach, make sure you get sunscreen, needless to say, functional sunscreen at that. So thank you for your question there, Julia. Fraser has a question. He says, although I find myself achieving the long-term goals I set myself, it has become increasingly more difficult. It is becoming increasingly more difficult for me to shake the insecurities and anxiety I experience on a day-to-day basis. I feel as though life has been relentlessly throwing massive obstacles toward me, and I've been feeling pretty bogged down for a while now. Which strategies do you use that help you motivate yourself to perform your duties and responsibilities? I find it admirable that you have the confidence to pull off such a unique look, especially in the public eye. Thank you for your question there. One thing, and it's even, I'll be quite honest with you, it's difficult for me to answer this question. I'm not... I'm not going to pretend that I I have all the answers and that, you know, this isn't something that I'm able to successfully deal with uh, because I have difficulties myself trying to get things done as well. And I have lots of my own anxieties. I get scared to even go outside sometimes. You know, it's it's very intimidating. So, I mean, I, I have my constant own, you know, mental battles that I have to fight on a, on a daily basis. I don't like talking about this stuff too much because I don't want to be one of those people that, you know, it's, it's good to focus on what the issues are, but I, I just don't want to be defined by it. You know, I just don't want to have to say, you know, yeah, my, you know, anxieties and everything else I deal with this and that and the other thing, I just want to be me, you know, and and do what I can to try and not to ignore its existence, it has to be tended to, but not to give it too much unneeded uh, control over my life either. But one thing that always works best, a lot of things, they may not even be that big, they may not even be that complicated, but if it all piles up, it can seem very daunting, very intimidating, And even the little things can certainly cause a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, and that can just be pretty hectic and, you know, like you said, get get, you just bogged down. One thing that I always try and do is sometimes if you, let's say you take the thing that you need to get done, and if you break it down, now it doesn't always work, but sometimes if let's say... 
right? Like even, and I know it's a silly instance, but it's something that I was just doing the other day, right? Let's say getting a video done for the YouTube channel, right? At first, it might just be like, all right, yeah, you get a video done, right? Well, not necessarily. There's so much that has to go into it, right? And even doing that can seem a little daunting. It can be like, all right, research the item, look it up, find a location, get ready, make yourself presentable, find the right lighting, find the right spot, make sure the item's correct, get the video done, make sure it's done well, get it uploaded, get the title, get the description, get the keywords, get the hashtags, get images for the social media, type up the posts you're going to use for the social media. I have to translate it, it manually do the English translations, translate it into 20, 30 other languages, get the thumbnails, get the monetization. Then when it gets demonetized, I have to appeal it and I have to contact YouTube and I have to blah, blah, blah. And then I have to release it and then I have to get it out. Then I have to manage the comments and I have to better get a pinned comment right? And it builds up. And it's like, all right, what I thought was just going to be this one thing, all of a sudden is this whole process. But you're able to break it down. And it breaks down into 40 other little subsets. If you look at each one of these things and then go from there, all right, I'm going to get dressed. All right, see, that's done. Okay. Now I'm just going to go ahead. I'm going to look up this item, see what it's all about. All right, there we go. I'm at the web page for that. Gonna take a few notes on that down, all right. Uh, here's the location of the nearest Burger King. And the weather's looking pretty good, so uh, all that's looking good, I'll head over there. All right, yep, it's on the menu, got that ordered, good and good. It is the item that I wanted. I was able to get that angle. Now everything's set up there. Now I'll go ahead, I'll get this filmed. And, and being able to break it down, what would seem like something that's extremely intimidating when it looks like it's just so many things, one after the next, that go into it, it gets easier. So being able to break a problem down into these little bits of subsets and then tackle it one thing at a time is sometimes helpful. Um, but like I, like I said, it's one thing, it works for me. But even then, another thing to do is always find what motivates you, whatever that is. And that's something that's different and, and personal to each and every one of us. And focus on that. You know, if, if nothing else, say, look, I'm going to do what I need to do today uh, for this. And maybe that's, maybe that's for self-improvement. Maybe it's for the paycheck. And look, if it's for the paycheck, don't feel bad. Don't feel like, yeah, I'm doing this for money, right? Don't feel bad. Look, that's what pretty much every single person who has a job, that's what they do it for. And then say, see, I'm doing it for this paycheck, so I can go ahead and I can go and pay my rent, pay my bills, and be able to treat myself. I can go ahead and I can go get a good meal at this. I can go buy this new release of whatever, have some fun. Uh, save this money up and do the things that I enjoy doing in life with it, right? If you're doing this for a friend or a loved one, someone you care about, think about them. It just think about what, what keeps you going, what keeps you motivated, and what is leading you to do what it is that you're doing or trying to do. Also focus on that. So just some little advice here and there. And uh, best of luck to you, though, Frazier. Hope things, uh, hope things pick up for you. Courtney in England says, 
I watched the new miniseries called Unbelievable on Netflix recently, and it's about a girl who is sexually assaulted and is not believed. It brings about the question whether we can be coerced into admitting something that is false or to something that we did not do. Can we be strung along and tied into a lie? How does one become so disassociated from one's sense of self? And that was from Courtney in England. Uh, oh, absolutely, 100, 100%. And this happens all the time. I, I mean, you even look to various, I hate to say corrupt, because you, you know, I support law enforcement, I do. I'm not one of those people that hates the cops or anything there. Uh, granted, you're always going to have, with any large organization, including law enforcement, uh, some bad people there, right? And that goes for everything. Doesn't mean all cops are bad. Again, I support the cops, but that's that's a, a, another day. One thing that you will sometimes see from time to time, and especially more corrupt police departments, is you will see if you have someone that just wants to get that conviction under any circumstance, you will get times where someone is falsely framed, falsely set up, and in the interrogation, even though it's immoral and illegal, they are set up into giving a false confession. And they didn't commit the crime, they didn't, let's say, commit the murder, but they'll take advantage of the circumstance, the corrupt investigators will, they'll intimidate you, and they'll lead you to make a false confession. I mean, this stuff happens. Read about it. But this happens very often. Uh, these types of tactics, again, psychological manipulation. If certain people are able to prey upon whatever it may be, various, I hate the word weaknesses, of other people, they can find a way, again, through psychological manipulation psychological warfare to go ahead, get into your mind and literally make you believe something that is a lie. And, I mean, this is done with intelligence agencies all the time. CIA, you name it. Uh, of course, even various military organizations. And you even see this again, like I was saying, with, with various corrupt law enforcement. And sadly, you have lots of people even just in, in, let's even forget about intelligence agencies and police and military and all that. You have people who are just complete psychopaths and evil, vile people out there that abuse other people and do terrible, terrible things and literally get people to believe that they did something that they never did. Like I said, it could also string someone along tie it all into a lie because they're able to just they're able to do that stuff and it's disgusting one phenomenon that everyone should research is something called gaslighting it's a real thing i mean let me just read this right here this is from wikipedia but it's perfect a definition gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation in which a person seeks to sow seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or in members of a targeted group making them question their own memory, perception, and sanity, using persistent denial, 
misdirection, contradiction, and lying, gaslighting involves attempts to destabilize the victim and delegitimize the victim's belief. And that's something that they'll use. Now, that can be some gray area, because granted, there are people who are just, they are crazy, but you also have people who are evil, and this term exists for a reason, who will just make you think that you're the one that's crazy and not that the situation is beyond messed up. So, something to consider. Um, I can go on about this all day, but thank you very much, Courtney, for your topic suggestion. Abby writes in with a uh, question. She says, I hope your index finger heals soon. It it has. It's It's gotten much better, and I'm very thankful for that, as a matter of fact, so I'm glad that it has. Um, but she says, I have a topic for next week's broadcast. I find it fascinating how many things humans think are perfectly healthy at a point in history, only to find out in the future that they were deadly. Examples include makeup made of lead and mercury, the belief that cigarettes are good for you, lobotomy, heroin cough syrup, tapeworms for weight loss, etc. What popular products and or practices do we have today that you think we will sometimes find out are dangerous to human health? My personal guess is skincare products. That's from Abby. Thank you, Abby. I, I, I would imagine certain skincare products definitely will have their, their detrimental issues. I could definitely see that happening. One thing that certainly is controversial, and uh, it'll be something to watch either way. Maybe it's completely and totally harmless. Maybe it's not. You don't hear about it too much, and I think it's just because there's so many things that are going around right now that uh, it just kind of takes away from it. Again, like I was saying with politics, and you know, you know, you know how it is. That's what everyone's focused on. One thing that I, I've been wondering about is in regards to cell phones and smartphones. You know, one report that was released, I think in August, and then everyone forgot about it, was that the radiation levels that these devices emit are actually higher than they legally are supposed to be. And, I mean, we live with these things. We keep them near us all the time. What if, at one point, it'll eventually lead to even higher levels of cancer? Who is to say? One thing some people have been talking about that they're worried about is 5G, uh, with various theories about that. So will one day those higher levels of radiation catch up with us and uh, take us out in the end? Or will it just be, eh, actually it wasn't too big of a deal, we're more resilient than you think, and uh, no biggie on that one. So those two things, uh, again, 5G, once that really gets rolled out, and then just the higher radiation in the phones, is that going to have any sort of impact or is it not? It's going to be an interesting one to see. And again, maybe it won't. Like, you have certain things where there's a big scare about it, and then it ends up that it's like, eh, no big deal, you know, it's it's fine, really. Uh, but there's other times where it's like, oh, wow, this is actually really, really bad for us. So it's going to be an interesting one to follow. Thank you for your topic there. Tony writes in with a question, and she says... I already asked you a couple questions, so 
forgive me please, but I heard a song on the radio a while ago by Johnny Cash called Boy Named Sue. I of course had heard it before and thought it was a cute song, but I just got thinking about something. Do you think a person's name influences their personality? Obviously it did to that poor guy in the song, but what about in general? And another question is, have you ever judged someone you met based on their name? I personally can sympathize. My whole childhood, I really disliked my name. It's a boy's name. And I know that there are some girl Tonys out there, but not many. And most of them were boys. So I was a super girly girl when I was young. I loved pink everything and was just overboard in the feminine department. My dream job was to work at Disneyland and be the princess featured at the end of the parade, wearing that huge pink fluffy dress, waving at the crowd that everyone admired how pretty I was. My father raised me solely, and I was his only child. He was also a very manly man and always tried to bond with me in what I considered boyish ways, such as fishing, target shooting, hunting, etc., I felt like he wanted me to be a boy sometimes, so perhaps that's why I acted so girly. I used to beg him to braid my hair, and he'd refuse. He didn't know how, nor did he want to. And I remember being so envious of girls with pretty feminine names like Jessica or Melissa, and I was stuck with Tony. It makes me laugh now, and I don't mind my name anymore. I've matured a lot, but it still makes me wonder if my personality would have been different if I had the name I wanted? Did I become obsessed with being ultra-feminine due to having a boy's name and upbringing? A good friend of mine is married to a guy named Brandy, and I don't care for him much as he disrespects my friend a lot, unfortunately. I know he was picked on pretty bad for this name as a kid. I also knew a kid when I was growing up with the last name Wimpy, and he was one of the meanest kids I ever knew. So that was from Tony, with a question there, and a little bit of a side anecdote. I mean, it all comes down to how people react to the name, and I think it definitely does have... It has an influence on who you are. I mean, especially if this happens when you're a kid, you know, that's when your mind is developing, and those are probably the most formative years of your life. Once you're older, I mean, even you know, your name doesn't bother you as much. And it just is what it is, but when you're younger and you're a kid, that's it's a huge thing. Now, I mean, you know, my first name is John. It's it's like one of the most basic, basic names out there, so there's not much to it. I've never really judged anyone based on their name. I just, I look past that, and I just, I look at the person for how they are. But I know lots of people are very petty, and they will make judgments based on what your name is. Now, I think it's one of the most foolish things to do. Because just just because your name is a certain way doesn't mean that you're a certain kind of person. A name is just a name, and that's it. It is the most trivial of trivial things. And everyone should see past it and then go from there. You can have two people with the same name, and one of them can be a terrible person, and then the other can be a wonderful person. Just because one of them is bad, 
Obviously, it doesn't mean that everyone with that same name is bad. And just because one of them is a good person doesn't mean that everyone with that name is good either. So, a name is just one of the silliest trivial things, but I don't think having, let's say, a, a name that's less common will completely determine the type of person that you are. But, you know, it definitely will influence you in one way or another. Like, maybe... As a kid, you always might have been more on the feminine side, right? And you always might have been more girly. But, because of how you felt about your name at the time, that perhaps even influenced that more so than it would have otherwise. So, it is interesting, but absolutely. I think that definitely is something that does influence people as to growing up. Uh, your name, and more importantly, how people react to it. And it's a sad thing. Um, but that's just how it is. That's how lots of, of people are, you know, especially at a young age. They like to pick on everyone for very, very silly little things. You're listening to VORW International, the voice of the Report of the Week. And with that, I will be concluding today's broadcast. Any feedback is welcome. V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. That's V O R W. I-N-F-O at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can tune in again next week. Do take care. This is VORW.